Traxel Technologies v. AT&T. Okay, Mr. Ramey, I think we're ready to go. Thank you, Your Honor. If it pleases the Court, may I begin? Bill Ramey for the appellant, Traxel Technologies, LLC. And today we're here to ask the Court to reverse a Section 285 award in two cases, the Sprint case and the Verizon case, we'll refer to it as. And we allege that the District Court abused its discretion by making a clear error in judgment and based its decision on the relevant law. And the relevant law we're talking about is the effect of a magistrate's order and a magistrate's report. What difference does it make whether the order was final or not? It's the strength of your argument. I mean, you could base an exceptionality finding on the fact that you filed a frivolous complaint before anybody even made any determinations what claim scope was and things like that, right? No, Your Honor. I think that guts a 28 U.S.C. 636. Are you saying that if somebody files a frivolous complaint that you have to wait until you get some judicial final ruling on whether there's merit or not before it's adjudged to be exceptional? No, Your Honor. It's the strength of your position, right? Yes, Your Honor. I think this Court – sorry. So if the strength of your position is frivolous from the outset, what matters if the magistrate's the one that said it's frivolous, the district court's the one that said it's frivolous, or we're the ones that said it's frivolous? I refer back to 28 U.S.C. 636b1 and Fifth Circuit law, which we would look back to on this issue, that a magistrate ruling takes no right away from the parties until – That doesn't answer my question. That's just his point, that the magistrate ruling isn't relevant here. It's the strength of the positions. We don't need a final judgment by the district court. I would agree that the totality of the circumstances play into a Section 285 result, and all that we were looking to do was to get a ruling from the district court on those claim construction issues. I refer back to – Claim construction issues? I thought that was gone. I thought you had exceeded your time frame to file objections on the claim construction. Am I missing something? Yes, Your Honor. That's a good – I'm a good – that's a good point. I'm glad you brought it up. So when we're talking about claim construction objections, it's right. Our claim construction objections were filed outside of the 14 days to make those objections. And so when we did file them late, we had filed – other orders had been ordered by the district court or by the magistrate judge, and we had timely objected. In consideration, we went ahead and lodged objections to the claim construction. Do you at least agree that the exceptional finding is based on more than just the magistrate judge's order? There's other things identified as well to support that sort of finding, correct? We think every exceptionality finding was based on what Judge Schrader said were Judge Payne's other orders and opinions constantly re-urging positions. We were trying to get a ruling on what was essentially going back to what Judge Payne said for his exceptionality. I don't think I got a yes or no answer to my question. Do you agree that there's more than just the magistrate order to support the finding under 285? I do not. I think that it's all based on the magistrate's orders, a variety of orders, and that's why it's one of our issues at the start of the case. We pointed out, is it an abuse of discretion or is it improper for an applicant to rely on multiple objections to magistrate orders? 28 U.S.C. 636b1 and b are very clear. Each one, if you file objections, and there were, there's no dispute, we had objections to every order except for the Markman order. The Markman order, we assumed 
based I, on... I'm, I'm, I'm very confused. Are you saying... What are we talking about orders as opposed to magistrate, the magistrate judge's findings? I don't understand. What, did the district, what are you complaining that the district court relied on here precisely? The district court relied on, in, his, in the final order that issued, he relied on the, the May 15, 2019 issue, ruling on the report and recommendation from Judge Payne. That was, and then there were timely objections to that report and recommendation. That was what... So are you saying that everything in Judge Payne's report could no longer, could not be relied on for this purpose because it was in a report that wasn't finalized at the time? I'm, I'm not clear. No, Your Honor. In fact, Judge Payne came out, and what he said was that he based his exceptionality finding on, he said that it's reasonable that Apple could have assumed that until I denied their request to, to serve supplemental infringement contentions alleging infringement under the doctrinal equivalence, it's reasonable for them to have assumed that, that, that they might still have a claim. And when he issued that ruling on July 22nd, 2019, that's when he said the case become, that's when Trexel's case became, had no merit, become unreasonable. Why didn't you agree to a stay? I thought like at one point there was like a stay put on the table and maybe a proposed stipulation put on the table because it sounds like you were very keyed in on waiting for a final, I guess a final order by the district court. Why didn't you agree to just like stay some of these things or have some type of stipulation that I thought was proposed? Why did that never come to fruition? That's a good point, Your Honor. So I'd like to, if I could get in that briefly. We, in fact, you'll see from our, from, or from Pellant's conduct, we agreed to a stay in the T-Mobile case. We were readily advancing a stay with all the defendants. The only one that would agree was T-Mobile. The Verizon Sprint case wouldn't agree to a stay. And so being in the Eastern District of Texas with the not agreed stay, we didn't think it was worth going forward. When it comes to the stipulation, this is in June of 2019, June 13th through 15th are the emails in the, in the, in the documents there, which would be at appendix 1255 through 1256, when we're talking about the stipulation, we advanced the fact that we would gladly stay the case. And they said, if and when we get a ruling from the district court on the Nokia case, we agree to dismiss your case. And we said, we would definitely reconsider our position. Everyone was waiting for that final ruling from the court. This, if you notice, June of 2019 is after we had the report and recommendation from Judge Payne. We were all waiting for Judge Schrader's final decision on the objections because we were, I was released, the appellant was relying on 28 U.S.C. 636, 1BB, I guess, is that we needed a final ruling from the district court. Now, if I, if I could basically just go through a few pieces of things that the U.S. Supreme Court has said that a magistrate judge has no authority absent consent to take away any rights or make a binding disposition. And then the Fifth Circuit follows that up in U.S. v. Cooper, 135, Fed 3rd, 1960. The report and recommendation of a magistrate judge takes away no rights of a party. I guess I'm still unclear, and this goes back to Judge Hughes' question at the outset. Who's saying that the, we're not, we're not going to affirm or reject what the district court did here on exceptionality based on the finality of what the magistrate judge. We're going to look at the record of what the parties did and what they didn't do with respect to this case. Yes, Your Honor. Some of that may have been, some of that 
information that the history of this case may have been articulated by the magistrate judge. It may be in his report. But that doesn't mean that all of this stuff is off limits because it was in his report. Are you saying because you had a right to seek review in the magistrate judge's ruling and recommendation that exercising that right can never be a judge to be frivolous or exceptional? No, Your Honor. I don't think that's the case at all. I think, in fact, what we tried to show in our briefing was... Wait a minute, because that seems to be the thrust of your argument when you're talking about the finality. If you agree that even though you have a legal right to seek review of a magistrate's ruling, it can still fall under exceptional conduct to do so, that's the basis for this case, isn't it? The district court found and the magistrate found this was exceptional because you continued to push this after it was clear you weren't going to win. Your Honor, what we tried to do was we were waiting to get the final ruling. I think that this court... No, 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 but that's exactly it. That's what I said. Just said is, can it be exceptional even if you have a right to get a final ruling? And you agreed it could. And the district court, I understand you think that it wasn't exceptional for you to get a final ruling. The district court disagreed. That's not legal error, is it? It is when you're... That's an abuse of discretion standard. Pardon me, I did not mean to talk over you, Your Honor. We think it is legal error because of 28 U.S.C. 636. I do not understand your responses to my two questions. You agreed that despite the fact that it wasn't final and that you were allowed to seek review, that very act of seeking review, which was your legal right, can still form the basis for an exceptional conduct finding. So I refer to this court's decision in the... Can you just answer that question again? Do you agree with that? Under certain facts, yes, Your Honor. I think under certain facts, if, for instance, the party took no position, took no position, no change position based on that magistrate judge's opinion. We're here. We did. If you go to the appellate record for the Sprint case in Appendix 1290 through 1296, those are the positions that we changed completely. But now you're just arguing whether the facts of this case warrant an exceptional conduct finding, and the district court found they do, and we have an abuse of discretion review on that. We're not going to redo those for you. And we're not asking you to redo them. In fact, that was very clear in the briefing, the reply brief, that we're not asking... What are you asking us to hold? I'm asking you to hold that it was an abuse of discretion based on the circumstances of this case. Well, that's facts. What legal ruling would you say it was an abuse of discretion as a matter of law for the district court to X? Okay, so there's two. The district court based its exceptionality finding on the report and recommendation of Judge Fahey. That's clear in the order that he says that. Well, you disagreed that he could do that. I said in certain circumstances that it could be the case that a court could find that, like this court found in the Lumen case, when the party agreed that infringement was not tenable. In this case, we contest that infringement wasn't tenable. That's why we filed the objections. That's why we did the objections to the report. Before your time runs out, can I take you back to the discussion we were having a few minutes ago about the stay? I thought I understood you to be suggesting that you wanted a stay, but the other side was refusing, so there's no way you could get a stay. I didn't see that in the briefing. I thought the briefing position, page 21 of your brief, footnote 70, that you were just suggesting that both sides could have filed for a stay. Did I misunderstand what you were saying? I think that's 100% what the brief said. There's nothing in the record about us having requested a stay to the point that we were making the briefing was addressing 
the appellee's point that Traxel could have moved for a stay. In the court of equity, either side could have moved for a stay. It was in discussion between the parties. It just wasn't ever moved on because no agreement was reached, and there's nothing in the record on that. Okay, so it wasn't the reason you didn't get a stay. It wasn't that you wanted a stay and the other side was objecting, so there was no way you could get a stay. You never asked for it. You could have asked for a stay and you never did. We never asked the court for a stay. We did discuss a stay between the parties, and we never reached agreement on going forward to the point like we did the T-Mobile case because we did stay there. But you could have asked for a stay, right? Did anything preclude you from asking for a stay? No, nothing precluded us from asking for a stay, Your Honor. And I had reserved three minutes. I saw it start at 15, so if I could. Good morning, Your Honors, and may it please the Court. My name is Brian Schmalzbeck, and I'll be speaking for both Sprint and Verizon today. Before getting into the factual findings by these experienced patent judges that had five years of experience with this case, I do want to address the stay point briefly. My friend on the other side said that Sprint and Verizon wouldn't agree to a stay, and that's incorrect. Verizon did clearly request a stay after the Nokia report and recommendation came out. My friend raised this in the reply brief, and so this isn't in the appendix, but at docket 476-2, Exhibit 26, which is an exhibit to Verizon's fee motion, there's correspondence clearly laying out Verizon's request for a stay. Was the request made to the district court or just a request among the parties? Was it just a discussion among the parties? This one was a discussion among the parties. As Your Honors recognize, Traxell never requested the district court for a stay, and we certainly would have agreed to that, and that's why the parties requested it. But turning to the factual findings that underlie the exceptional finding in this case, there were three. One, that Traxell litigated an objectively baseless case. Two, that Traxell litigated this case in an unjustifiable manner. And three, that Traxell ignored the red flags along the way. There's no error in those findings, let alone the clear error needed to reverse, nor is there any error or clear error in the district court's determination that those findings made this case exceptional under Section 285. I'd like to highlight just a few points that make this case stand out. First is the objective baselessness of Traxell's infringement theories. What makes this case unusual is that Traxell doesn't dispute the reasonableness of its theories. They admit that on page one of the reply brief. And under Octane Fitness, as you pointed out, Judge Hughes, that objective baselessness alone can suffice to make a case exceptional. But what makes this a particularly easy 285 case is that Traxell was on such clear notice of the objective baselessness. And that notice did come from that parallel Nokia case where the same magistrate judge addressing the same patents and what the district court called a materially equivalent infringement theory recommended summary judgment. To any reasonable plaintiff, that should have been a big red flag. There were also letters that were sent also, right, by both Verizon and Sprint to... That's right, Judge Cunningham. Both Sprint and Verizon sent those letters explaining why that Nokia recommendation mapped onto this case directly. And that was a factual finding that the district court made, that these are materially equivalent theories and it should have given them very clear notice that this case would fail for the same reason. My friend on the other side also said that Traxell modified its infringement theories in response to that Nokia recommendation. But again, the district court found otherwise. The district court found that there was no explanation actually linking the accused elements to those limitations as construed in this case, to which Traxell filed no timely objection. And as this court held when this case was up on appeal before, all that Traxell offered to link those accused elements was alphabet soup and an army of citation footnotes crouching in a field of jargon. 
So between this court's previous opinion and certainly with the district court's factual findings, the finding that this case is exceptional is very well supported. What about the district court's suggestion or statement at page appendix 36 where he says Traxel should have known its patent infringement theories were unsupported when the court issued a report and recommendation on summary judgment in Huawei? Can that not be read in a way that would kind of raise one's eyebrows? I mean, if it were just not the content of the magistrate's report and recommendations, but just there was a decision by the magistrate judge against you, that in and of itself should have been enough, creates an exceptional case thing. That would be problematic, would it not? I think it would be problematic if that sentence said Traxel's infringement theories were objectively baseless because of the Nokia theory. But that's not what it says. What it says, it's about notice. Traxel knew or should have known at that point. So even though objective baselessness alone can suffice to make it exceptional, here the judge is saying that not only do you have that objective baselessness, but you have it clear as day in front of your face that you should have known it was objectively baseless. And at that point, you shouldn't have continued to run up the cost of litigation. You should have agreed to a stay or proposed one yourself. I would like to address what I understood from the briefs to be Traxel's legal argument that the district court was forbidden to even consider a report and recommendation as part of the 285 totality of the circumstances analysis. I'm not aware that any court has ever said that, and there's a good reason why a court wouldn't say that. There's no final order from a district judge needed because there's no order needed from any judge, period. As this court held in the Blackbird Tech case, there's no duty for a court to advise a litigant of the weakness of its litigating position. Rather, every litigant has its own independent duty to make sure that all of its claims have a reasonable basis in fact and law. And last, I'd like to point out that the district court, although it would have been well within its rights at that point to declare this case exceptional, the district court gave Traxel more chances to litigate this case in a responsible manner. Now, the opposing counsel argued that new theories were pursued, and I think you said that that's not the case. Can you just give me a little bit more explaining why there weren't new theories that were pursued in terms of the infringement after some of these things happened to show that there was some objective baselessness? Yes, Your Honor. Traxel certainly raised the idea of alternative theories, but what the district court found as a matter of its factual findings was that it never supported those alternative theories. And so Traxel said, well, we'll try to meet the single computer limitation with these various items that are in a laundry list in their brief. But what the district court found and what this court said in the first opinion was that those aren't connected. There's no connection between those accused elements and all of the requirements for each claim and each claim limitation. And so it's not enough to say, well, we'll try to revise our theories. You have to actually go in an objectively reasonable manner and connect the dots between the accused element and the limitation. And so it's not that the district court declared this case exceptional after the case was objectively baseless or even after Traxel had such clear notice that its case was objectively baseless. But instead, the district court gave Traxel another chance to litigate the case responsibly, which it didn't do because Traxel kept filing motions that sought to relitigate issues that had already been resolved against it. And the district court recited several examples of this. One I'll just mention is that Traxel filed a motion for leave to assert a purportedly corrected version of a claim that had already been held invalid as indefinite on multiple grounds. And Traxel's motion for leave didn't address 
that fundamental alternative independent ground. And so that was just another example. This case was exceptional, but it was based on a very limited amount of time. Were you pursuing exceptionality in a broader space and did the district court cabinet to a more limited space? Yes, Your Honor. We requested a finding that the case was exceptional, and so we requested our fees when we sent those letters that I referenced, the letters explaining why the Nokia recommendation meant that this case should be staged, should not proceed to run up the litigation costs. So that was the time period that the district court agreed to, right? Or was that— No, Your Honor. So the district court cabined the time and said only after that meritless motions practice after the Nokia recommendation came out would it award fees for that period. And so the district court was very tailored in what it awarded. It could have awarded more, in our view, but it just shows how careful an application of Section 285 this award was. So if the court has no further questions, we would ask you to affirm the fee awards. Thank you. If it pleases the court, briefly, we're aware of no other decision where this court has affirmed a fee award based on a magistrate's ruling except for the Lumen case. The Lumen case was because the— But there are fee award cases where there's been no ruling at all and no finality to the ultimate merits, right? There are plenty of those around, right? Yes, Your Honor. But in this particular case, because we got a magistrate's ruling, Title 28, Section 636B1 allows us to make objections. And if you go off the Fifth Circuit precedent, Donaldson v. Ducat— So would you not have appealed if there were no magistrate ruling? Like, let's say it was just a district court doing it, no magistrate involved. In your opinion, then, this is totally fine? No, Your Honor. Then we agree 100%. If that May 15, 2019 ruling had been a district court ruling, bingo, right there, that's when everything starts. We would have been on notice. But because Title 28, U.S.C. 636B1 does exist, we're allowed to file objections. The Fifth Circuit says so. If we don't like a magistrate's ruling, we're allowed to file objections. You're always allowed to file objections, but if they're frivolous objections, they're frivolous. I mean, Judge Payne is not some brand-new magistrate. He's been around since well before I got on this court. You know that. Yes, Your Honor. If he thinks your case is bad, why isn't that a basis to say your case is bad? Just because you have the right to challenge that. Because we based our objections on Fifth Circuit precedent, Federal Circuit precedent, and what we believe to be— I think you're talking about two entirely different things. No, this is— Your legal right to seek review doesn't insulate you from an exceptionality finding. I would disagree with you in this one aspect, Your Honor. We did, in fact, 100% address Judge Payne's concerns by trying to point out GPS coordinates that were attached to our theory of location determination. This court already found that that wasn't sufficient. So that's how we put in the briefing that we're not asking the court to review that again. Just to clarify on my question, so if Judge Payne is not involved, it's just Judge Schrader, you're good with this exceptionality finding. You're like— 100%. We put that in the briefing. We understand that to be the case. We were merely relying on 636B, the case of Donaldson v. Ducate, 373 Fed 3rd 622, says a party dissatisfied with the magistrate's— may I continue for a couple seconds? With the magistrate's ruling may object, thereby compelling the district court to review. And that's all we were relying on. We, in fact, made everything in our pretrial order, everything subject to the objections. We understood, and the parties in their June correspondence understood that the minute that we got a final ruling from there, that we were done. Thank you. Thank you. We thank both sides, and the case is submitted.
That would be the Wintrexel. If the if the district would affirm, that would win Trexel would lose its rights as it was doing. Thank you. 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 Th